0: Hey, that's not supposed to be wet. Uh, what is going on? Death Valley is wet. I know. You say what? What is Carmen talking about now? It's hour two of mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Have you ever been to Death Valley? I have driven through Death Valley. It is um, it it deserves its name. Absolutely earns its name. Deserves its name. Well, I got news for you. Death Valley is um is right now historically wet. So a couple of months ago, a storm um, passed over the region. It dropped a year's rainfall in a single day. You probably remember this because there was a, a, a an event called Burning Man going on in the Nevada desert, and um, it got literally like washed out, flooded, flooded roads, destroyed trails, on and on and on. Well, uh, Death Valley was Affected by the same storm, and so they literally got a year's worth of rainfall in one day. Well, these famously flat basins that have been dry as long as anybody can remember um you know they're now these shallow temporary lakes, and um you can you apparently you know if you climb high enough, you can see them you know all, all round about so um, they they appear like as oases in the middle of the desert, and so there's just a very limited number of people who are actually seeing this because you'd have to be walking um at altitude in uh in places like Mosaic Canyon. So I mean, for a long time, right? So just but these, it's beautiful. It's it's stunning and so there uh, there are people who are trekking out there to see these quote unquote surprise lakes and um uh seeing what are normally just like salty crusty lake beds you know see them full of water and obviously um the the wildlife that has burst forth um and w- wild flowers and on and on and on so Um, They talk about the flowers being confused and the animals being even more confused. And so here's what came to mind as I was reading this in the L.A. Times. There there are times that it seems like things are so far gone that it's not possible to hope in a resurrected reality. When things are so bad, when things are so awful, when the world is so mean— becomes very, very difficult to imagine that new life could could emerge, could come. And then God gives us opportunities to see things like Death Valley um, teeming with life. Ezekiel 37, the first 14 verses, is, um, is a vision that God gave to a prophet um, in a day when he despaired. So the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among the bones, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And he said to me, Prophesy to the bones. Say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to the bones. I will make breath, ruha, enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel says, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. The bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them. Skin covered them. But they stood there lifeless. There was no breath in them. And then the sovereign Lord said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come. Breathe. From the four winds, breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit within you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. The Israel to whom God is speaking in the days of Ezekiel was a people cut off a people cut up, a people in great despair. Now, in 2023, they are a people who live in the land that God has promised them, but they do not live there, many of them, by faith in the God who is speaking here to them in Ezekiel 37. And so the question remains, can these dry bones live? Just because you're living and just because, I mean, just because you are alive doesn't mean you're living. And just because you are living in Israel doesn't mean you are living in Israel as the people of God. The sovereignty of God matters. The reality of God matters. Faith in God matters. And in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the living God has descended upon all flesh. Have you received Him? Do your dry bones live? Heather Zeiger is a science writer. Um, she visits with us periodically so that we can catch up on some things. Um, we're going to catch up with Heather on the topic of catching up on sleep. Can you? Are you a sleep camel? Are you familiar with the concept of sleep cameling? Do you try to catch up on sleep over the weekends? Is that even possible? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, our friend Heather Zeiger is with us. Good morning, Heather. Good morning, Carmen. Are you a sleep
1: camel? Well, I, <laughs> I certainly was in college and grad school. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about uh, this
0: uh, this idea that we have that we can catch up on our sleep over a weekend. Um, you've got some you've got some research related to this, um, and and it is it is refreshing. It is refreshing guidance. So go ahead
1: yeah so first of all let's remember the cdc recommends that we all get an average of seven to eight hours of sleep each night adults Mm -hmm. anyway i'm I'm kind of and i kind of laugh at that i'm I'm sort
0: of in the six hour range right yeah yeah
1: Mm -hmm. it kind of depends on what your season in life is right like my friends that have new babies i mean who knows who knows Mm -hmm. um so anyway, the question is, you know, say you get six hours of sleep each night, Monday through Friday, you know, work days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, but you're supposed to get something like eight hours of sleep. So the question is, does that mean you have 10 hours of sleep deficit that you need to catch up on? And can you actually pay that off on the weekend? That's what people want to know is like, can, can I make up for that on the weekend? And the studies show uh, kind of you can So it used to be this like, no, you can't. You really do need to get uh, seven, eight hours of sleep a night. But the truth is um, you can actually sleep a couple more hours uh, a night on the weekend, and that'll help refresh your body. Now, there's a caveat there. You don't want to sleep too much because then you mess up your circadian rhythm. And you you could also do this through naps. And, you know, I've read like optimum nap time is something like 20, 30 minutes. Again, you don't want to sleep too long because then you'll mess up your sleep-wake cycle. It's still the studies still show the best thing to do though, Carmen, is to have a regular sleep wake time and to maintain that habit um, throughout the entire week. Having said that, like of course, none of us stay consistent, and so you can get more rest on the weekends, and that can help refresh you and help kind of set you back set you set you back get your fatigue uh, and your circadian rhythm back in line.
0: So I have a job that um, requires me to sound like I've been up for a while by six o'clock. <laughs> so, right. It's the yeah. sounding like I've been up for a while that actually matters by six o'clock. And so in order to sound like I've been up for a while, I have to have been up for a while. I don't have a way around that. So um, I think this is the... You know, the the challenge for people who are listening right now and, you know, they're the ones that make the donuts or they're the ones that drive the buses Mm -hmm. or they're the ones that deliver the papers or they're the ones, right, that milk the cows. There's a lot of jobs out there, including the ones that Paul Perot and I do, that require that we get up really early in the morning. And in order to get up this early in the morning consistently, Monday to Friday, you'd have to go to bed by like, well, certainly no later than 8 p.m., but probably more like 7.30 and I don't know about you, but I'm not old enough to go to bed at seven thirty.
1: yeah, no, no
0: right. I mean I this gotcha. is the challenge exactly. you know, and I mean no I mean'm I, I'm not complaining. I'm sort of acknowledging that the the reality of the world we live in now. I mean, I think about healthcare professionals. I mean, there's a lot of people out there, factory workers, delivery personnel. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of folks not getting enough sleep. What is it doing to us when we don't get enough sleep? like what's why do we
1: need so much sleep? So I, uh, I'll answer this with, uh, with a person I know. So I know a person, she's a competitive triathlete. So that means that she's working out a lot and she's tiring out her body a lot. And she takes her sleep almost as seriously as her training. So she's also a Mm. teacher. So that means certain times of the year, she's way more busy than others. Okay. But what she does is she does do things and orient her schedule so that she takes her sleep almost as seriously as her training and studies show, I look, studies have shown over and over again and i'm i'm a big proponent of this that you that the two things you can do to decrease anxiety and depression even better than medication and has fewer side effects is getting enough sleep and exercising and those two things tend to reinforce each other so you get enough sleep you have the energy to exercise if you exercise you're able to sleep better and so yeah people like you, people like my parents where they have to get up very early for their jobs or you know nurses who have you know shifts and stuff there are things that you can do to help you sleep well when you do sleep and honestly like some of us we just have to plan to get enough sleep when we can you know what i mean and then exercise mm-hmm. so that we can sleep well when we do sleep that's what I then. That's just based on some studies that they've been doing with the exercise and sleep and how those relate.
0: Yeah, it's just always good to be reminded and have that encouragement. So, thank you, um, thank you yeah. for revisiting that with us. Um, I want to talk about the definition of fertility. Um, we're going to start this conversation, and then we're going to have to take a, a quick break. But I read an Axios article um, about infertility, and can you can you talk with us a little bit about? The definition of infertility and how it is changing in the culture today
1: yeah so the american society for reproductive medicine used to the the traditional definition of infertility is when a man and woman can't get pregnant after a year of unpro- unprotected intercourse or or i guess interuterine insemination uh is also but for a year of trying they can't get pregnant. If you're over 35, they say, well, six months and you can't get pregnant. That was the definition of infertility. That has been the definition for the longest time. Well, the, um, Society for Reproductive Medicine has like, has liked, would like to change the definition to include, um, I'm going to quote them here the inability to get pregnant because of a patient's medical, sexual, and reproductive history, age, uh, physical findings, and diagnostic testing. They also say uh, infertility if they require donor eggs or sperm to achieve pregnancy. So in other words, they're changing the definition uh, that includes infertility due to disease condition or status. So it allows for the inclusion of people who are in relationships where you could never get pregnant through through intercourse. So LGBTQ plus um, groups. So this is this is a change to they say be more inclusive.
0: All right. And I want to continue this conversation in just a moment because this has some ethical worldview implications. And I think when we talk about what's going on in the world and the redefinition of terms, um, you can help us, you know, you can help us understand not only the issue, but then engage. Um, and I think that the, the line I want to draw, Heather, or try to draw is the line between um, empathy and sympathy, I have sympathy for people, but i 'm not sure that, as a culture, we should be quite as empathic as we have become so um, as you're as you 're considering this, um, how do you define infertility? What does it mean to be infertile? What does the Bible tell you about this topic um, what is god 's will in the matter this particular matter of the day we 're going to continue our conversation. With Heather Zeiger. She's a science writer. You can find her at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. You're listening to Mornings
1: with Carmen. Thanks so much for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Hey, I'm Suzy Larson. Hey, if you enjoy what you're listening to here, would you consider subscribing to other great faith radio podcasts like mine? Search Suzy Larson Live at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day.
0: So according to an article at stat news, um, but you can also read it across a range of other outlets today. Infertility has a new definition in the United States, one that could make a big difference to would be parents who are single or LGBTQ plus last week, the American society of reproductive medicine issued an expanded description of the condition of infertility, stating that infertility involves quote, the need for medical intervention. So I just want to pause right there. Um, because infertility is um it's such a challenge for married couples who want to become parents and that's the context where god intends for children to be conceived and born and raised and so heather um heather zeiger is here with us she's a science writer she uh, one of the places that she serves is at the center for bioethics and human dignity heather can we just talk about infertility as Christians. And this is a terrible struggle that many couples have. And so we don't want to diminish the challenge, the pain, the struggle that infertility is. And yet we also don't want to see all of these terms redefined in such a way that childbearing and parenting becomes so utterly disconnected from God's design and model as to be absurd. Cause that, this feels like it has reached the, the point of, absur- of absurdity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Carmen. So this is, um, so it's a delicate topic because, and I, I actually think Proverbs has a good verse that kind of describes the kind of um, pain and difficulty that people who have unwanted childlessness have, and that, that it says a hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so, we need to be careful about our terms here. So we are talking about infertility, but infertility is a medical condition. Often um, it's more—it's a symptom of another condition, although sometimes we don't know the original cause. Um, we need to be careful that we're not conflating infertility, which is a medical term, with childlessness, which is not a medical condition. It's, um, it's a social state. It may be due to many things. Um, like singleness, physical disability, older age, um, being in a relationship that isn't between a man and a woman. So assisted reproductive technologies like IVF, they actually don't cure infertility. And so that's where we get very confused here is um, they cure, quote unquote, cure childlessness. And so more often than not, couples are still infertile after they have IVF but they're no longer childless. And if you talk to some couples, they're still dealing with the grief of the fact that they're infertile, like even after they have IVF. So I think that the biblical view, like what Proverbs says, describing it as this hope deferred actually puts a little, it kind of gives voice to where that deep seated pain is. So when we conflate these terms, um, Yeah, they're doing that for health insurance reasons, but you're also claiming to have a medical condition when your body is behaving perfectly healthfully, if you will. So it's actually not a medical condition. And so, and this is, and I'm talking about this even with heterosexual couples where we're kind of conflating these terms and that's where we're getting into these muddy waters where things kind of seem absurd is we start with mixing up these terms, the medical issue of infertility, and then the um, deep-seated pain and problem of childlessness, but not just the pain, but the, the condition of childlessness. So those are two different things. And when we conflate those, then we can start saying, oh, IVF or other assisted reproductive technologies cures infertility, which it doesn't. It actually gets rid of childlessness. So I know that's a, that's a very short way of describing a very difficult um, distinction here.
0: No, I think that's really helpful. I, I'm i pretty sure that most of us have not spent a lot of time thinking about the difference between infertility as a medical reality um, mm-hmm. suffered by a couple. Um, you know, I think in the Bible, you know, we would talk about, you know, her womb being closed versus her womb being open. Like that was the maybe the the way mm-hmm. they understood it. She was childless Um and there was great grief associated with that um and more often than not you know there there are these anguishing prayers about it um and in some cases god opens opens her womb and we have all we have these incredible testimonies of uh, where those who were understood to be infertile which was this great shame that people experienced um in biblical times and maybe maybe some of that is still experienced today Um, and, and so we want to, we want to recognize and acknowledge all of that. And yet we want to be really, really clear. If you were not designed to have a baby, if you were not designed to conceive and carry a baby in your body, then your issue is not infertility. Right. Then that's the social condition that you are trying to help us distinguish between here. And so maybe that's the language that, um, that we could, we could think about and consider. If a person's, if a person uh, has a body that is not designed to conceive nor bear a, a child, here I'm talking about a genetically male body, then the issue is not infertility. That person might actually be perfectly fertile in terms of their ability to produce sperm, but they are not designed to conceive nor carry a child. And when we talk about assisted reproductive technologies today... I mean, the the range of things we're talking about, um, I mean, you know, it's it's wide-eyed in terms of uh, uh, beyond what earlier generations would have even um, thought to imagine.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, you know, Carmen, something that we didn't, we aren't going to, we don't have time to get into here. But uh, in all of this, you want to consider what's best for the child. And a lot of times that gets gets kind of left out of the conversation. Um, But, you know... Mm study after study. And then this was recently, there was one, they published this in the Atlantic and it was a, you know, secular, secular periodical, secular group saying, you know, we've got to acknowledge the fact that study after study shows that children thrive best in a two parent male and female home with their parents. And that's not to say anything bad about, you know, folks that have to deal with, you know, single parents and all of that. But just to say that, like, we need to consider, the children here, which is often left out of the conversation uh, of any of these conversations.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I had written down here, the commod the commodification of children, um, mm-hmm. you know, that unwanted childlessness versus, you know, the will of God and God's good design um, in all of these things. Um, thank you so much, Heather, as always, we didn't get into the ethics of espionage, but um, maybe we can circle back around to that uh, on a later date.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because that sounds Definitely. fascinating.
0: All right. Yeah. Um, well, so next time Heather joins us, we'll talk about the ethics of espionage. Is spying good or bad? I don't know. You can, uh, you can think about, um, you, you can give that some thought, and, um, and you can let me know what you think. And the next time Heather's on, we can talk about that. Um, Heather, as always, thank you so much. Um, the members of, uh, some select members of the media globally had the opportunity to screen um, footage of the October 7th attacks that were recorded by Hamas in real time. They heard audio recordings um, of, of members of Hamas who crossed the Israeli border and massacred uh, Israeli civilians. And one of the reasons that Israel felt compelled to share footage of what, frankly, no one should ever have to see, let alone endure, was because there are people out there who are already denying that it happened. They're denying that it happened. They said it's just, it's just all a um, fake campaign um, that n- nobody really died. None of this really happened. Um, and, and it did. Hundreds of people, more than, more than 1,400 people died. And so um, these me- members of the media were forced to watch what you know we would describe as snuff films, um. why do we need to see all of that? Is it that hard to believe that people do evil things to one another, unspeakably evil things? I want you to think for a moment about people who we call bad, those bad people, and what makes them that way. And we're going to pivot from having Hamas in view here <clears throat> to having a serial killer whose name you know as son of Sam. His name is David Berkowitz. He is rightly spending the rest of his life behind bars for taking the lives of six people and wounding seven others in 1977 in New York. But he has a compelling... Um, he has a compelling story. Mike Caparelli uh, has met with David Berkowitz 35 times now. And from those meetings... He not only has stories to tell, he has a mirror to lift up to us. The book is Monster Mirror. Mike Caporelli joins us next. I'm pretty excited to be uh, talking with Michael Caporelli today. Um, I'm going to let him tell his own story, and I can hardly wait for you to hear his voice. Mike, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Good morning, Carmen. Thank you for having me
0: on. Good morning. So um, you are from Providence, Rhode Island, originally. Tell people a little bit about yourself, Um Uh, so that they can they can gain an understanding of why you might be interested in the things that so deeply interest you today.
2: Uh, Yeah, I grew up in a home where my parents were not believers. My dad was uh, in prison and I remember visiting him as a kid. In fact, the euphemism in Italian-American families when your dad is in prison is he's in school. So my mother would take me to see him in prison. I was about 10 years old. I'd say, Ma, where are we? And she said, say, we're visiting your father in school. I said, what is he majoring in? She said, law. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought at 10 years old, I'm seeing dad in law school. In fact, I'm visiting him in prison. And then at 17, um, I end up myself in juvenile detention center. First time I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that was about 28 years ago. And uh, I gave my life to Christ, never went back, and eventually pursued an education in theology, I uh, pastored a church for about 16 years. Uh, the majority of the people that were in that church were people that were from the streets, They were either from addiction. Uh, some of them were releasees. I spent a lot of time doing prison ministry. And then during that process, um, I had also pursued higher education, not only my master's degree from Liberty, but a PhD in behavioral science, uh, probably because I wanted to understand people better. Uh, my pastoral ministry had reached many impasses, uh, many points where I just couldn't get past, um, you know, a certain block with someone. And the PhD in behavioral science opened up my understanding to human nature um, on a different level. And I be, I also began to realize the Bible is probably the greatest, not probably, definitely is the greatest psychology book ever written. Not just the disclosure of God's character, but a Revelation of Man's Makeup. I don't read the book as much as the book reads me. Um, so somewhere along that, uh, the way of pastoring, I get my PhD. I resign from pastoring, begin traveling the nation, uh, speaking on mental health in churches, prisons, universities. I'm also a professor at a couple of different colleges uh, in the behavioral sciences, abnormal psychology, general psychology, criminal psychology, Uh, And then back in 2021, I'd mailed David Berkowitz, uh, also known as the Son of Sam, a copy of one of my books, a book I wrote called Dr. Jesus, which is about mental health from a biblical perspective. Um, I felt compelled to mail Berkowitz the book because I heard his story on the 700 Club. I already was uh, passionate about working with inmates, and David responded to my letter as well as the sending of my book within probably two weeks. And he basically said, would you come visit me? Uh, He wanted me to visit him because he was looking for somebody to tell his story that had both an an understanding of the supernatural, but at the same time, um, a comprehension of the psychological. He knew that his own story consisted both of uh, mental health factors as well as diabolical influences behind his 13 shootings, one stabbing, and 1,400 fires uh, lit in the Bronx. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, the Bronx was very close to my heart because my stepdad was from the Bronx, and New York City is about two and a half hours away from Providence. So, for me, New York was always uh, home away from home. Um, So, I did visit David. This was early 2022, and right away, um, we began a friendship Um, And I started what's known as a case study, 100 hours, 34 sessions of meeting with David Berkowitz, discussing both uh, the mental health factors behind his crimes, as well as the diabolical influences. When I asked David to describe evil for me, I said, David, how would you describe evil? He said, I would describe it the same way as the Apostle Peter He said, I have a small television in my cell. It's about 16 inches wide, the screen, 46 channels, and I keep the animal channel on. He said, I watch how lions prey upon a herd. They'll study the herd, and they'll look for that one vulnerable, injured gazelle. You know, the gazelle that's uh, maybe not physically um, as apt as the rest of the herd. He's walking alone, and the enemy being predatory. He'll prey on that vulnerable animal. He said, I was that vulnerable gazelle. There were certain <laughs> vulnerabilities and mental health risk factors from the time I was six years old that I believe the enemy preyed on that vulnerability, um, not taking away from human responsibility. I played a role and I made decisions to let him in. He said, but there was this interplay or this synergy between my mental health problems and the powers of darkness. So the book describes uh, that story, the story leading to the son of Sam, what turned this young man into a monster. And then the the book also features his journey uh, from 1988 when he gave his life to Christ, the journey of the monster turning back into a man. But more importantly, it's not just David's story. I believe it's all of our stories. It is a mirror um, because I believe the heart of man is wicked and deceitful above all things. Uh, Behavioral science has done a good job at creating categories of people, psychopaths, narcissists, um, sadists. But the facts are um, the potential in mankind to do evil is universal. And as much as we like to think there are other people, other kids would shoot up schools, not my kids. Other people would commit homicide, not me. There are no other people. And the more I got to realize uh, David Berkowitz and who he is, the more I I looked into David. I didn't look into a monster. I looked into a mirror. And that's the message behind the book is that it's really a message that can be summed up in one word. Whosoever. Whosoever has an Adamic nature is capable of committing awful atrocities. And whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved and be transformed. Um. So that's what Monster Mirror is all about. It's uh, got a lot of great stories about David. Um, my favorite stories are about uh, you know who he is in prison, our relationship, um, but there is also that that dark journey that led him into the son of Sam, from 1956 when he was born, all the way to the mid 70s.
0: We're talking with Mike Caporelli. The book is Monster Mirror: A Hundred Hours with David Berkowitz, once known as the Son of Sam. On mental health and evil phenomena, um, Mike. There are definitely people listening right now who's who are wondering, like you. You called David Berkowitz a friend. Don't you care about his victims? Don't you care about the families of those whose lives he's destroyed? Um, I, um, I think that the mirror reality um, requires me to. Um, to look not only at myself, um, but but to look at my understanding of the gospel. Um, so, can you, you can you talk about why why and how you call um, this individual your friend?
2: You know, I, I once told David during one of our sessions, I said, "David, being you a friend, I got to be honest <laughs> with you. You know, I, I have to shoot straight with people." I said, "Being you, this friend, is the falling, like rocks. Standing, <laughs> that yeah, falling like rock. That falling rock, like standing yeah. in a construction zone." And you look up and there's a sign that says, drop zone rocks may fall on your head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm in good company because Jesus was a friend of the sinners. Uh, being a friend of a tax collector in, in those days, a tax collector was a hustler, a swindler, one who may have been responsible for your bankruptcy, foreclosure on your home, etc. So they were not a beloved group of people. But Jesus was a friend of the sinners, and I I just believe that that's my calling. Um, David's not the first serial killer that I've worked with. I work with two others. Um, unfortunately, the other two, you know, we reached a point in the relationship where there was just too many games and too many psychopathic, uh, you know, ploys going on that I had to end the relationship and back away respectfully. With David, on the other hand, uh, he's a man that has come to terms with his own uh, if you want to call it psychopathy, you can. He's come to terms with his own psychopathy, his own lack of empathy, the, the man that he was. Um, and in, in doing that, he's been transformed. Uh, you know, transformation begins when denial ends. Uh, when, mm. when Jacob is able to answer the angel's question, a question that he once lied about, his father asked him, what's your name? He said Esau. And now here comes the angel, and the angel says, what's your name? And he's going to say, Jacob. When he says Jacob, he's admitting he's a deceiver. And the moment he admits that, the angel gives him a new name, and that's Israel. And and David had that come-to-Jesus moment in 1988. He was able to admit what he was. And by the way, he also has that come-to-Jesus moment in the book, because as you know, we're a work in progress. And David made some shocking confessions to me Mm -hmm. uh, in about chapter 9 or 8 or 9 where he admitted some lies that he told, even as a Christian, lies that he told on national television, um, on a TV show called Inside Edition back in the early 90s, even after he got saved. Now that might be surprising to some people, but I think if any, even a born again believer would really admit to themselves and admit before God, um, I know as a Christian of 28 years, I've told lies even as a Christian. So he was a work in progress but he 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 sees that today. He fears God. He's going to be 71 years old. He knows he's going before his maker. He's had a couple of heart attacks. And he wants to get the story straight. Mm. So um, I, we're friends because uh, Jesus was a friend of sinners. And we're friends because friendship is predicated upon honesty and trust. And I believe that we have that in our relationship. He's been able to say things to me. That he hasn't said to any journalist, any police investigator uh, in the last thirty-five years.
0: Yeah, so because you're has, a friend. Yeah.
2: yeah. Amen. I, I totally you know what? get
0: that. Hey, we got to take a very, very, very brief break. Um, don't I know that you guys are saying let's just skip the break today because Mike is um, is so engaging and I want to know more. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Michael Caparelli, uh author of Monster Mirror. Um, in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at myfaithradio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, All available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation now with Dr. Michael Caparelli. He is the author of Monster Mirror. Um, it is not just the, um, the story of David Berkowitz, who you might more famously know as the son of Sam. Um, it is a story of what it looks like to come to know ourselves as we come to know another person, a person who is desperately broken um, and, and a person who is redeemed. So the book uh, covers challenges issues um realities of isolation anger shame abandonment and the trauma related to that um prenatal programming like that we are who we are when our mothers conceived us um emptiness cognitive distortion defense mechanisms on and on and on and then um this turn where david um shares his conversion story and so let me ask the question mike like um i i I, this is a new this was a new word for me. Um the a testiphony. The question of whether or not David's conversion is a testimony or a testiphony, some kind of mm. what jailhouse conversion that people don't believe in. Is that the is that the question there that that exists for some?
2: Oh yes. I mean it's a common uh notion that people that turn to Christ in prison are doing it to hustle a parole committee. David does so go me, before can the I- parole.
0: Can I ask a question related to that? Do we feel sure. that way about anybody who came to Christ through the testimony of the Apostle Paul in prison? Like, do we? I mean, I'm like, I mean, when I think about the the way that people are like, oh, you know, I want to be like the Apostle Paul and I want to walk like him and talk like him and lead like him. You know, he was he he was a murderer. He was a terrorist um, and he was wrongfully imprisoned on many occasions as a Christian but probably rightfully imprisoned under what we would consider, you know, justice today. But we totally see Paul as thoroughly converted. We do not see him as a testiphony.
2: Truth. You know, I I believe in David Berkowitz's testimony rather than testimony, testiphony, because I've been up close and personal and I've seen not just actions. Actions are powerful. They tell you a lot about a person's character, but there's something even more telling than actions and that's reactions. Uh, Reactions are someone acting in real time under pressure. Um, That will tell you a lot more about someone than actions, because Shakespeare was right when he said the world is a stage, and many of us are thespians, and you can fake actions, but it's very difficult to fake reactions. I've seen David angry. I discuss it in chapter two of the book. Um, I've seen him manage that anger. Now, he didn't know how to manage that anger 45 years ago. He lit the Bronx, on fire. 1,400 fires were documented in his journal. NYPD found that journal when they arrested him, authenticated the fires. He had locations, times documented. I seen David at the aftermath of a conflict with an inmate. I arrived during one of the sessions, and he was enraged. And I watched him for three and a half hours uh, navigate through that anger in a way that only a man that has the grace of God in him and on him can work through anger typically when people are angry they externalize it's all about people places things the world needs to stop messing with me um usually when people are angry they're introspectively handicapped Um, but david berkowitz being a man who was filled with the spirit um, he was able to uncover that anger and rather than looking outside he looked inside and he just began to sob and he began to discuss uh in great depth what was behind the anger Anger is a cover-up emotion. It's a secondary response of the brain that typically masquerades more vulnerable feelings. And David was willing to go down that vulnerable journey. And by the end of the session, you could see the anger just lifted from him. So it's, it's human to get angry, but it's divine to manage that anger. So I've seen the fruit of David's life. And you really can only judge a man by his fruit. They say psychopaths are irredeemable. Um, the clinical community says that they make very little headway in, in therapy. Cancel culture says we should just do away with him. But I, I have seen the transformation of a psychopath. This man does not exhibit the DSM's criteria for antisocial personality disorder. Did he once exhibit that lack of empathy, inability to regulate emotions? Uh, yes. But is he a new man today? Absolutely. I've seen the fruit. I tell about it in my book. And if I can say this one thing, the book is available on Amazon today. It's been reduced. By $3, you can get it for a few dollars off. Uh, Amazon's doing this for a brief period of time, but that offer goes to anybody listening.
0: So, um, Mike, we got a listener question, um, and I want to share it with you. I, my inclination is to, is to, is to say yes. Um, I have a friend from high school who spent many years in prison as a result of attempted murder. I recently saw him at a high school reunion, and he asked me um, that one day I just surprise him and give him a call. But I've been afraid to do so. Um, Would this book be an appropriate, you know, like gift? Could I do you think I could send it to him and he might find it helpful?
2: I think so. I think that the thing about David Berkowitz, the reason why he gets hundreds of letters from people every week, including the recent serial killer, uh, the campus killer from last year in Utah, or Mm. Idaho, he wrote David Mm. a letter. Um, people reach out to him all the time because he's he's a safe place to go. I mean, you, you, you don't expect a guy like him to throw stones at you. So a, a guy like that, um, your friend's friend who was in prison, I think he's going to find somebody that he can relate to in David. And David's story is probably going to speak volumes about his own story. I did extrapolate nine themes, what I call a recipe for violence. Um, they're ingredients that are in everybody's cabinet. And I, I think that that, fellow will read it and find himself in the story.
0: Yeah, I love that. Hey, I'm going to direct everybody to your Facebook page. Um, You guys can find Mike Caporelli on Facebook at Cappy, C-A-P-P-Y, P-H-D, Cappy PhD. The reason that I'm sending you there um, is that in addition to obviously being able to easily find the book from Michael's um, Facebook page, if you scroll down, you're going to see um, this post just from a day ago. Focus on some, forget others. And it is a conversation about um, young people right now in the Cook County Juvenile um, Prison in Chicago. Um, And there is an opportunity for you to actually purchase copies of this book for those inmates. And so, um, yes, I think you should read Monster Mirror yourself. Um, And so I'm encouraging you to do that. But... um, in terms of passing this along to a population of individuals um, who you and I are probably not going to get in our cars and go see, and that would be the young men at the um, juvenile prison in Chicago and you know Cook County, um, there are 300 young people in that one facility. And so if you're interested in helping to make a copy of Monster Mirror available to them that God might find a way into their lives, um, you can do that through Mike Caporelli's Facebook page. Again, you just go to Facebook and then it's Cappy, C-A-P-P-Y-P-H-D. Mike Caporelli, I hope we'll have the opportunity to talk with you again. Hey, thanks so much for spending this time with me today. We are out of time on Mornings with Carmen. If you want any of the links or direct link uh, to Mike, just let me know. You can always text me, 877-933-2484. Look uh, look in the mirror today, look in the mirror and see what you see. Um, And may God bring greater and greater clarity to how we see ourselves and certainly how we see others, the world that he so loves. Jesus is literally dying um, to meet the people who you're going to encounter today. So let's be um, his hands and his feet, um, the light of his love to a world dying in darkness. Have a great day and God bless.